Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Agincourt, Part 2 of 2. If you haven't yet listened to the first part, it might be useful to do so beforehand. I've also done episodes on previous battles of the Hundred Years' War, on Cressy and Poitiers, so that could be useful as well. If you've already listened to those episodes, or would like to continue anyway, then let's begin and talk about the most famous battle of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Agincourt, 1415. King Henry V ascended to the English throne on the 20th of March, 1413, at the age of 25. He is described as being tall, slim and well-muscled, with hazel eyes and thick brown hair. In character he was said to be single-minded, and this he certainly proved to be in his objective of fighting the French. Henry had already proved himself as a soldier. As only a teenager, he had helped put down an insurrection against his father at the Battle of Shrewsbury, and later he commanded armies against Welsh rebels. Shakespeare depicts the young Henry known then as Prince Harry, as a riotous and irresponsible youth, but more reliable sources suggest this image is unfair, or at least greatly exaggerated. The historian Anne Curry warns that it is easy to fall into the trap of accepting that Henry was bent on war right from his accession. The young king was keen to exploit divisions between the two factions of the French nobility, the Burgundians and the Orleanists. At first he attempted to achieve this by diplomatic means. In August 1414 he sent an embassy to the Orleanists in Paris, offering to drop the claim to the French throne. In return he demanded full sovereignty of all the lands in the Treaty of Brittany, plus Normandy, Touraine, Maine and Anjou, and on top of that the French to pay up what was still owed from John II's ransom. Henry also sought the hand in marriage of Catherine, the youngest daughter of Charles VI, King of France. His demands may seem excessive, but they were, after all, an opening bid. The French dukes, fearful that Henry might ally with the Burgundians, offered to restore the Duchy of Aquitaine. Henry refused the offer, speculating perhaps that further civil war in France might bring greater gains. 
However, by the time of his second embassy in February 1415, the Dukes of Burgundy and Orleans were, at least for now, reconciled and prepared for a much tougher line in the negotiations. When they reduced the offer to only certain parts of Aquitaine to be held as fiefs and a cancellation of John's ransom, Henry gave up on talks and prepared for war. Henry's army landed in northern France on the 13th of August, 1415, and besieged the port of Harfleur with an army of about 12,000. The town's garrison put up stiffer resistance than the English expected. After six weeks, though, having given up hope of any relief army from the French king, they surrendered. Henry accepted hostages from the nobility inside Harfleur, while their soldiers of no monetary value were escorted out of the army zone of occupation. Henry now faced a dilemma. The campaign season was coming to an end, and the English army had suffered many casualties through dysentery. Meanwhile, the French barons, having put aside the differences, were gathering together a large army. Having assembled his council and informed them that he intended to march his army to Calais, 160 miles northeast along the coast, where they would spend the winter, Henry could more easily have made the trip by sea. His aim, though, was to challenge the French army to meet him in battle, if they dare. He was not keen on carrying out a chevauchee in the tradition of his great-uncle, the Black Prince, or his great-grandfather, Edward III. Instead of harassing civilians, he was only interested in attacking armed forces or anyone who put up military resistance. As the English passed by the villages of Montvilliers and then Fécombe, they were briefly attacked by the local French garrisons, but were soon able to move on. The French, discouraged by their earlier defeats in open battle, generally adopted a defensive policy when the English attacked. In practice, this meant withdrawing into fortresses and surrendering the initiative to the English. However, with a clearly superior force at hand, this time the French decided on a more aggressive strategy. When it became clear where the English were heading, it was decided to try and block them from crossing the River Somme. By the 13th of October, 1145, the vanguard of the English army reached Abbeville, the town where Edward III had crossed the Somme during his Cressy campaign. Henry found all the fords staked and guarded, all the bridges destroyed and a sizeable detachment of the French army waiting on the northern bank. The only course of action was to head southeast along the south bank of the river in the hope of finding a ford or a bridge further inland, where a crossing could be made unopposed. For several miles, the French force were able to keep pace and oppose any attempt to cross. The situation for the English was starting to become desperate. They were fast running out of provisions and losing yet more men from dysentery. Most scavenged from the woods and hedges were reduced to eating horse flesh from baggage animals no longer required. Finally, however, they managed to outstrip the shadowing Frenchmen by cutting straight across a bow in the river. They succeeded in crossing the Somme at a ford and resumed the march northeast towards Calais. The nearby French army was already enormous and growing larger by the day as more contingents joined. Many internal quarrels had been temporarily laid aside in the face of the greater threat from the English. The French king, King Charles VI, was unable to attend as he was suffering from one of his periodic bouts of madness. In his absence, there was no obvious leader. 
the Constable Charles de Bray and the Marshal John Bouchicot were nominally in charge, but the numerous senior magnates present, such as the Duke of Orléans, Alençon and Brittany, were not keen on taking orders and insisted on being consulted. On the 23rd of October, the English army crossed the river Tournoir, a tributary of the Somme, and caught sight of the enemy army. With his men starving and soaked by a downpour during the night, Henry nevertheless resolved to fight his way through to safety. The French constable, Dalbray, wished to avoid a repeat of previous defeats, where French charges had failed miserably against English forces lined up in good defensive positions. He was also well aware that the English were short of food, so had no need to make a hasty offensive. He withdrew his men two miles and took up a blocking position across the Calais Road, a mile southeast of the village of Agincourt. It was now clear to all there would be a battle the next day. All night it rained, while the English army slept or tried to sleep in ditches or under bushes, the French rested comfortably in their tents, or in the farms and houses about them. Then, as morning broke on Friday the 25th of October, 1415, St Crispin's Day, the two armies lined up against each other. According to Shakespeare, Henry addressed his men with a stirring speech. Quote, from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds the blood with me shall be my brother, be he near so vile. This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap or any speak that fought with us upon St Crispin's Day. The English were deployed in what had become the conventional manner, with three divisions of men-at-arms flanked by the archers. One novelty was that the archers carried with them long stakes, sharpened at both ends. These were rammed into the ground in front of and among the lines of archers, pointing forward so as to impale any unfortunate charging horses which failed to avoid them. It was said to be an idea picked up 19 years before at the Battle of Nicopolis, where the Turks had used the tactic successfully against an allied Christian army from Western and Central Europe. King Henry's plan was to repeat the strategy that had been so successful at Cressy and Poitiers, find a favourable piece of ground and wait for the enemy to attack. But when it became clear that the French were holding their line, Henry ordered his men to slowly advance. The archers uprooted their stakes, and the whole army began to move forward in line across muddy, open fields. It was a risky move, but fortunately for them, the French did not take advantage, and instead held back. The French were also arranged into three lines. The men of the front and second lines were dismounted, in front of the cavalry, which formed the third. There were also 3,000 crossbow men attached to the French forces in the rear, but they played a very little part in the battle. Three hundred yards from the French line, the English army halted, planted their stakes and got back into formation. They managed to reach a location where they were flanked on each side by two woods, highly beneficial since they were greatly outnumbered by the enemy and did not have sufficient men for a reserve or flanking force. The French still remained where they were and the two armies nervously faced each other across the sodden ground for four hours, waiting for the other side to move. Eventually, Henry was forced to act. 
If the French would not attack, he would have to advance against them. His men slowly moved forward in formation until the enemy were within longbow range. Each archer placed their stake once more back into the wet ground and opened fire. Thousands of arrows rained upon the enemy within the first few seconds. Unfortunately for the French, their crossbowmen were far to the rear and unable to contribute. They were brushed aside by the mounted knights, who decided now was the time to charge headlong towards the English flanks. The cavalry, however, were slowed down by the muddy conditions of the recently ploughed land on which the rain had been falling all night. When the horses were repeatedly struck with arrows, they started to panic and charge in whatever direction they could to try and escape the hail of arrows. The few who reached the English line were confronted by the row of stakes and were forced to withdraw. Meanwhile, the front line of the French began to advance. Their going was very slow, wading in heavy armour through mud now further churned up by their own cavalry. What's more, they were forced to bunch together between the two woods as they approached the shorter English line. As such, they offered the perfect target for the English longbowmen. So tightly compressed were the French warriors that some struggled to even find room to yield their weapons. Over the last section of the advance of the French, the longbowmen were shooting directly at them. At such close range, the narrow bodkin arrowhead would be able to pierce the plate armour, causing even more death and destruction. As the French line finally reached their enemy, the archers dropped their bows, drew their long knives and attacked the French alongside their armoured companions. Although the French had the advantage of numbers, they were exhausted after their arduous march and jammed together could not fight effectively. Those knocked to the ground were unable to get back up and many are likely to have suffocated inside their own armour. The French second line also now joined the attack, but with the narrow terrain their extra numbers could not be used effectively. If anything, they were probably hindering the ability of those at the front to manoeuvre and fight and as more of their comrades perished, the French struggled to fight over the bodies of those who had fallen before them. The offensive gradually ebbed, and soon French knights and men-at-arms began to surrender, first in ones and twos, and then in whole subunits. The last serious assault from the French was when a group of their soldiers attacked the English baggage train in the rear, while simultaneously the French third line returned to battle for a final concerted effort. The English were at this time in the process of moving their prisoners to the rear and reorganising their tired army. Henry did not have enough men to guard the hundreds of prisoners and repulse both attacks. He therefore came to the decision that the only way to ensure that his prisoners could not renege and restart the battle was to order their execution. The men-at-arms were not keen on the idea, since not only was this an act contrary to the ethics of chivalry, but large sums of potential ransom would also be lost. The lower-class archers had no such inhibitions and set about the task. As soon as the attack on the baggage train was beaten off, Henry ordered the lives of the remaining prisoners to be spared. Those French who were able to do so fled the field, marking the end of the battle. Henry had taken a considerable gamble in giving battle. His army had been outnumbered by the enemy and exhausted by their long march, but either through great luck or skill had won another decisive English victory, as resounding as either Cressy or Poitiers. 
Henry marched his army to Calais and sailed back to England in triumph in mid-November, the campaign having lasted for a mere three months. The French, on the other hand, were demoralised and humiliated. Half of their nobility perished, including three dukes, 90 other nobles and about 1,560 men-at-arms. About 200 more were captured, including the Duke of Orléans. The Duke of Burgundy had not participated in the battle, although some of his men had. Now he strove to exploit the power vacuum that the battle had created in France. The French attempted to retaliate the next summer by besieging the English-held port of Harfleur with the help of the Genoese. To relieve Harfleur, Henry sent his brother, John, the Duke of Bedford. The English fleet defeated the French after a gruelling seven-hour battle and re-secured control of the Channel. With the French weakened, Henry made a serious effort to exert his authority in Normandy. As soon as he arrived in France in 1417 for his next campaign, he started to distribute lands to soldiers and administrators. As well as extending royal power, the policy provided a vested interest in the war to men of all ranks, from the noble who gained a new land title to the humble archer who received a few pounds in rent on a house or small holding. Henry waged war continuously for more than two years in Normandy. There were some lengthy sieges, including that of Rouen, the historic capital of the duchy. But once the major settlements had fallen, the rest tended to offer no resistance. The success of the campaign was in large part thanks to separate civil war within France between John of Burgundy and the Dauphin Charles, aggravated by the loss of so many nobles at Agincourt. The Battle of Agincourt decisively handed the initiative in the Hundred Years' War over to the English. Henry V soon not only took control of Normandy, but in 1420 compelled King Charles VI of France to recognise him as regent and the heir apparent to the French throne, in place of his son, the Dauphin Charles. It looked like a real possibility that Henry V would be able to conquer France and unite the two kingdoms under his rule. Agincourt ensured the Hundred Years' War would continue for decades to come. It's always great to hear from you. I welcome any comments or suggestions or, or whatever feedback you'd like to give. You can get in touch on the Facebook account and perhaps give it a like whilst you're there. Um, perhaps go to my blog, www.historyeurope.net, if you prefer that. Uh, you can also go to my Twitter account, at historyeuropekb, or write to me directly at carl, that's with a C, at historyeurope.net. Um, I'd like to give thanks to listener Ralph for his recent generous contribution and also to listeners Brent and Sarah for joining up on Patreon.com. I've decided that the next set of episodes, which will be on the siege and then final fall of Byzantine Constantinople of 1453, will be available on Patreon.com to subscribers who 
are generous enough to contribute $3 a month. The next set of episodes on the regular feed will be a continuation of the Hundred Years' War. There's plenty more battles to come, plenty more action, with the civil war going on in France, King Henry V, King Henry VI, and leading up to the Battle of Castillon in 1453. An important participant in that French civil war is the Duchy of Burgundy, a subject I will go into in more detail afterwards, leading up to the Siege of Nancy. In 1477. So there's plenty more to talk about, plenty more to come. I hope you can continue to join me and thank you for listening to History of Europe Key Battles. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.